0: Five, four, three, two,
1: one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. In this week's podcast, we're featuring a recent future in space operations presentation by Barbara Brahm and Sam Sims from the Aerospace Corporation. They spoke on policy compliance roadmap for small satellites. Small sat proliferation in low Earth orbit continues, due in part to the low barrier to entry. However, one area that lacks universal standards is policy compliance. Listen in. Okay, well,
2: this is Barbara, and I will just... Um, I'll just uh, do a very quick introduction, and then I'm going to turn it over to Sam because she's going to do the the first part of this brief. Um, But I did want to mention that both of us work for the Aerospace Corporation, but we are actually representing the Rocky Mountain time zone because we're both uh, situated in Albuquerque. So I will, uh, with that very brief introduction, Sam, I'll turn it over to you, and you can go ahead. Okay,
3: um, and to add on to that, um, I am currently supporting the Prototype Secretariat in the Space Systems Command Prototyping and Innovation Directorate. But this work all stemmed oh, five years ago. It started uh, when Barbara and I were both supporting the DoD Space Test Program, and we were working a mission called ftp um, 2 um, and if you can go to chart two, the second chart, I guess, um, um, SCP-2 was a mission where the SMC, um, now called SSC, Space Systems Command, um, owned the rocket, but. Did not own or have satellite control authority for any of the space vehicles that were on the rocket. They came from all over. They came from NASA. They came from uh, commercial industry. There were six foreign spacecraft on there. There were some from the Navy. There's some from AFRL. There was uh, one, two from um, private univers- or from public universities. Um, so it was a mishmash of multiple spacecraft from all over, each with different rules of what policy and regulations they had to follow and things that they had to do. So that was what, that experience piqued our interest of trying to explore this further of, well, what is the right thing to do? Um, the SSC, as the launch vehicle owner, can't really impose their Uh, policies and directives on a NASA spacecraft or on a commercial spacecraft or on a foreign spacecraft even. And and what our investigations finally came down to is that each of the spacecraft have to follow their own policies, and SSC as the launch provider and organizer uh, herder of the CATs has to just be aware of what those other agencies' policies are. We have them send a letter that says, I can attest to, we followed all of the policies and procedures and directives uh, and regulations that we have to follow and thereby I certify my spacecraft is good for you to launch. Um, And so that's that's how STP um, and SSC has handled it. Is there anybody that has a question about that or anything to add in?
4: Uh, yeah, this is Harley, Sam. Got a quick question, although you may get to this later. I did not look ahead on your slides. Among all the things you have going on, there's a lot of cats, as you said, a lot of moving parts, a lot of walls in the air, to use one of the various cliches. What was among, so far as the um, policy goes, which was the – which was the lagging policy or which was the policy that um, was the, if you can say, what was the most difficult, uh, most challenging?
3: I think, and Barbara, I invite you to say something different if you disagree and or pile on. Um, I think frequency is always an issue because it can be complicated in some instances. We'll get to some of those complications later on. It seems to take a long time. Um, And I think for those people who have security or cyber issues, um, sometimes that takes a lot of time to get the paperwork all taken care of.
2: Yeah, and I, I would concur. That's the, you know, those are the big hurdles. And frequency is not just frequency alone as we'll talk about later for a lot of commercial satellites. It's also debris mitigation policy and the compliance with that. So combining that all together, that makes it a big long pole in the tent, especially for small satellites that may or may not know what orbit they're going to to begin with or may or may not know what launch they're going on and, in fact, may have a development timeframe that is shorter than the time it takes to get the policy approval. Um, The other thing I would only add is that Even though the DOD, which we were supporting, is the launching provider here, and even though we came up with this uh, concept of everybody follows their own policy and provides us with letters, um, you know, a lot of these were new providers, universities, for example, or or emerging entrants into the space business. And uh, we found that we kind of had to have a, a reasonable understanding of what the requirements were so that we could advise these um, these payloaders and also so that we can make sure that they had checked all their boxes. So that, that was kind of the genesis of, of this paper. Any other
3: questions before we move on? Okay, moving on to slide number three. Um, so as Barbara said, we started thinking about this, we started investigating. Um, looking into things, talking to the teams that that were providing the spacecraft uh, to this mission. And people didn't know where to turn. They didn't know the answers. They didn't know, oh, I'm supposed to do, they maybe knew they had to do one thing, but they didn't know they had to do this other thing. Uh, We also, for um, at least one of the spacecraft, we had to go up uh, to OSD and seek a policy, policy clarification. Just because we felt that the situation we were in was something that was so different and not done in the past, we weren't really sure how policy applied to that situation. Um, So, in 2017, we published our first version of the Policy Compliance Roadmap for Small Satellites. Uh, Late last year, we published an updated version of it, and there's a link at the bottom that you can uh, go and download the paper if you want it. Um, these kind of missions that we described in the previous uh, slide are kind of what the norm is going to be. What we're seeing, at least in the R and D and the prototype world, we are no longer launching launch vehicles that just have one spacecraft on it or two spacecraft from the same organization. They have all of these spacecraft on there with um, coming from multiple different organizations and and multiple different disparate organizations. Does somebody have some data? Okay, um, and so what? Um, one of the things we've also been investigating is um, OSD chartered a group called the Small Satellite Coordination Activity. And we have been uh, supporting that activity specifically from a policy standpoint to look at where the issues are and what recommendations can we at least make to the DOD, the organization that we work within, to try and improve the situation. Um, Key for small satellite programs is that the teams are very small. Unlike a larger program that has hundreds of people on it, you can't dedicate a single person or a couple of people to work policy and regulation. They may be the um, systems engineer, and this is their side job that they have to figure out what policy stuff they have to do. So they don't know what it is they have to do. They don't have a lot of time to dedicate to filling out paperwork and tracking down everything that they need to do. Um, And a lot of times the small satellite timeline, their mission timelines, are going to be a lot shorter than the time it takes to get all this policy approvals taken care of. Um, So, we have found instances where there are spacecraft that are integrated onto the launch vehicle, and fingers crossed that any day now their final approvals for whatever it is come through and they can launch and turn on. Um, We have also had instances where um, a spacecraft has had the lens cap on their um, imager taped shut at launch. Um, because they didn't get their approval in time, and that's how they dealt with it. Um, And in this uh, effort that we have been working on with the Small Satellite Coordination Activity, one of the recommendations that we have floated is, A, a guide, creating a book or a guide that can walk uh, people through everything that they need to get, and a one-stop shop somewhere in the government that a program manager can go to and say, hey, I'm going to be launching this spacecraft in two years and I don't have any clue on policy. Please help me and direct me to where I need to go. And this one-stop shop could also be whenever you come up with conflicts or gray areas could be that organization that takes a look at the situation and decides, you know, definitively oh, this is the way we need to go in this situation, or no, you need to go and work it this other way. Any questions? All right, I will hand it over to Barbara to walk through some of our flow charts and the other charts that we have.
2: Okay, um, thanks, Sam, and uh, yeah, just as a way of a brief reintroduction. Um, I also support the Aerospace Corporation, and right now I'm in the Corporate Chief Engineer's Office, but uh, all of this work that Sam referred to and a lot of my, you know, basically until about six months ago, I also supported the, um, the Space Test Program, AFRL, and um, the Space Traffic Capabilities Office out in, in Kirtland Air Force Base in New Mexico. And most of the work that's in here, I also was a reservist for a while at um, the Air Force Safety Center in the Space Safety Division, where I, I, I took a hand in writing a lot of this policy. And as a, a brief sort of uh, you know, humorous aside here, I, I used to think in some ways that policy was the sacrosanct thing that gets made at high levels and communicated down to the masses. And then I was in charge of actually updating policy for the Air Force, and I realized that it really is, you know, a a lieutenant colonel reservist who doesn't know what she's doing on a telecom line with a bunch of angry people all trying to hammer out a a concurrence on things. So uh, there's nothing magic about policy writing that that means that uh, the folks doing it have a pipeline to the wisdom of the ages. Um, Generally, we are trying to keep up with uh, changing environment as much as everybody else is, and uh, it's very difficult to write good policy. So so we do the best we can, and as a result, because the U.S. has been in space for so long, a lot of our policy is sort of patchworked together from history, and uh, and that makes it even more challenging to navigate this sort of policy compliance roadmap. So if you go on to um, chart four, what we generally find is the first question you need to ask, especially when you're dealing with missions like STP2, which Sam referred to, and uh, the sort of notional mission that we diagrammed on chart two, is who is responsible for authorizing your widget, your launch, your satellite? And uh, the answer can be a little more counterintuitive. I, I, I hear someone off mute, so I'll pause to see if there's a question. And. I, I have no problem with uh, with being off mute, but I tend to talk a lot and listen less. So uh, please shout loudly if you uh, if you want to interrupt me for a question. But I will try to pause at the end of every chart. Um, so if the question really is, you know, who owns this um, this thing? Because that will tell you whose policy you need to follow. So, for example, if the Air Force owns the launch then uh, they're responsible for all the launch policy. And we'll have a diagram coming up that kind of illustrates this. Um, But that doesn't necessarily mean that they have responsibility for the NASA satellite that's being deployed on that launch. So who has responsibility for the NASA satellite? Well, that's pretty easy to decide. It's NASA. Um, But what if this is a university satellite that just received from NASA grant money? Are they considered a NASA satellite or are they considered a private-slash-commercial satellite? Um, and what about a, uh, a university satellite that's on the Department of Defense uh, Space Experiment Review Board list, which means that the Department of Defense has paid for their launch to space, but the university is, uh, is actually owning and operating this, uh, this, um, this satellite. So we, we try to decide who is responsible, um, and this is the flow chart that we use. The rough answer to this question, and I won't walk through this flowchart, right now we're looking at, um, you know, we kind of break this out into DOD and uh, NASA and commercial satellites. The question that we tend to ask is, who's got satellite control authority? And this can mean many things to many different people. So what we're really asking is, who decides what the satellite does, and who decides when the satellite is finished? Um, In other words, usually the... The clearest way to ask this question is, who could decide tomorrow to turn the satellite off and not operate it anymore? Um, Because if you, for example, are a DOD organization and you've hired a bunch of contractors to fly the satellite for you, but you get to decide what the satellite does and you get to decide when its mission is finished, then you, the DOD, have satellite control authority. Um, In the case of the earlier... Situation that I mentioned where we had a university satellite that was on the DoD third list, so the DoD was interested in the outcome of this satellite's experimentation. Um, the DoD still did not direct the day-to-day operations of that satellite and were not the ones to decide when that satellite was finished with its mission. So that satellite was considered a private flash commercial satellite and uh, followed commercial regulations, and we'll we'll discuss what that really means. So in general, if you are the DOD, DOD owned and operated components, anything that the DOD has has satellite control authority for um, falls under DOD regulations. It doesn't matter if they're launched on a DOD rocket or if they're launched from the International Space Station or if they're launched on a commercial rideshare that they procured. Once that vehicle separates, It's a DoD-owned satellite, and it must get all of its approval through DoD channels. As we can tell, obviously, gray areas exist. We we talked about the funding for the University Nanosat Program, um, satellites that are on the third missions, and then there are some other um, policy loopholes that relate to security requirements and hosted payloads that are a little more gray and a little less clear. But, um, but you know, as a first cut, you know, if the DoD Besides all the things that need to be done for this satellite, it's a DOD-owned satellite, regardless of who's operating it or who launched it. Um, if you go on to chart number five, uh, NASA are very similar, but they have a ruling that says if you have NASA grant money or you're on a, uh, under a contract to NASA, then you must comply with all NASA regulations. So in this case, it's a little different than, say, the DOD Space Experiments Review Board where um, you get a little bit of uh, grant money from the DOD or you get access to space from the DOD, but you retain control of your spacecraft, NASA says if we give you grant money, we want to make sure that you are following uh, our regulations. And uh, private satellites, uh, which we also call commercial satellites, um, I think we may use the two terms interchangeably here, they are basically any other satellites that don't fall under DOD or NASA regulations. There There are some Kind of interesting gray areas here. You know, NOAA tends to follow its own regulations, but also follows the NASA regulations. And you know, civil non-NASA missions—you um, could consider, for example, if the Department of Homeland Security were to launch a satellite. Sometimes it's not clear what regulations they follow. Usually, they follow whoever they're working with to uh, to launch that satellite. But you know, as you'll see throughout this talk, there's a lot of policy gray areas out there, a lot of areas open for interpretation. And while this can, this, this sort of paper and roadmap can guide you through these uh, these decision-making processes, it's it's really important that you get in touch with your own leadership to to figure out if you fall into one of these cases. So I'll pause for a moment and um, and see if there are questions. Okay, not hearing any, I'll move on to uh, chart number six. And I alluded to this chart before where we talk about uh, who's responsible. Well, not only do you have to figure out who's got satellite control authority, but let's suppose that you are a commercially operated ride share um, from an agency that basically buys rockets from a launch provider and then sells the space on those rockets to a bunch of different organizations. Um, who's responsible for what aspect of, of policy compliance? And uh, so this little diagram is, again, the high-level answer to that. Um, up through spacecraft separation, that rocket and all of its stack is the responsibility of the launch vehicle owner. So if that's a, a SpaceX launch, for example, or a ULA launch, they tend to be responsible for certifying to whoever has purchased that, that rocket that um, they've met all compliance. And and basically, in the case of a commercial launch, that would be the FAA. Um, Launch certification and licensing, again, depends on who owns the rocket. It'll probably be through commercial channels for commercial launches, NASA and DOD channels for NASA and DOD-owned launches. The launch vehicle components, the reentry of um, second stages, there are regulations about how those can reenter and what safety needs to be observed that will also be through the launch vehicle owner, and um, the orbital safety before they re-enter will be part of the launch vehicle owner. So the rocket itself is kind of like a whole package up until it isn't anymore. So uh, you will launch, and, uh, and I, I should mention, too, that uh, wherever you happen to be launching from, you will have range safety considerations, you know, whether you're dealing with hazardous materials, what the probability of casualty is for anybody around the actual launch itself, how far away from the rocket you need to be, all of that would be off the launching range. So if you're launching off of a, a DOD range, you know, and um, Cape Canaveral, or if you're, or, you know, um, that Patrick Air Force Base, or if you're launching off of Vandenberg Air Force Base, then you would follow their regulations. If you're launching from Wallops Island, that would probably be NASA. And if you're launching from, uh, say, the Kodiak um, um, range up in Alaska, then that's, I think, a privately owned range that uh, would do their own range safety. So, again, the rocket itself is its own single entity, and it's under the policy purview of the launch vehicle owner um, up until the point where it becomes multiple objects. If it's, um, for example, it's just doing staging and you have the first stage, second stage, or any reentering stages and uh, you know flyback or landing, that's all under the authority of the launch vehicle owner because they own all of those stages. But when you separate a spacecraft or a, a deployment device that becomes a several different spacecraft, say, then, it, then that's where the, the owning authority of the rocket ends. So if um, if we've got STP Sat 5, which is a rocket that sorry a satellite that Sam and I both worked on, um, and it's launching on a commercial rideshare, that uh, that satellite once it separated from that commercial rideshare, it became a DoD an Air Force owned satellite and was subject to Air Force policy. It doesn't uh, stay, in other words, because it was launched by Spaceflight Industries on a Falcon. It doesn't. It isn't the property of SpaceX. It isn't the property of, um, of spaceflight industries, the commercial entity. Once it separates, it is the property of the Space Force and or the Air Force at the time. And uh, it follows under their policy bucket. And, you know, that, that launch was interesting from another perspective because what actually happened was it, um, the, the satellite that was the DOD satellite, SCP sat 5 didn't separate directly from the rocket it was actually spaceflight industries that separated kind of a deployment stage from the rocket. And that deployment stage with everything attached was the responsibility of spaceflight industries and therefore under private commercial rules um, until it deployed Sat 5 and then Sat 5 was no longer their problem. So it, you can see that this, uh, you know, if you think of it as almost like a little set of Matryoshka dolls, you know, those Russian nesting dolls. Um, you can kind of peel this back and draw boundaries around who's responsible for each part of the mission and who's got to get the authorities for, um, and the approvals for launch for each part of the mission. Now, the rocket owner itself has a vested interest in making sure that it's not launching any bad actors. It could come back to really hurt the reputation of the agency involved. So most of these rocket owners, including uh, the, the Air Force, when we launched STP-2, asked for some sort of a certification from the, the payloads that they are launching that they have indeed met all the requirements for their current agencies. And we did this on STP-2 through certification letters. But, um, but that doesn't mean that, for example, the foreign satellites on STP-2 had to adhere to Air Force policy, they adhered to their own policy, and they had to demonstrate to the Air Force that they had met all their own policy before the SMC commander would authorize the launch. Okay, so I'll pause here, see if there are any other questions.
0: Yeah, uh, this is Dan. I've got one um, on on slide six. You've got got your seven cases here for who is responsible, responsible for what, and all these look sensible, although... The one about reentry and disposal safety—that's um, really, in practice, only followed when reentry is going to happen or when disposal is going to happen. A big problem that we have right now is non-functional satellites that nobody is taking responsibility to make them reentry or to make them reenter or to dispose them. How, how do we how do we deal with that?
2: Right, yeah, and that's an excellent point, because most of these policy compliance approvals are all done prior to launch. And after that, there's not a whole lot you can do if, for example, a satellite um, goes dead on arrival and is non-functioning. They have, may have had all the best intentions to, you know, re-enter in accordance with the re-regulation requirements, but now they're non-functional, and um, and now they can't. So, how do you, you know, how do you get around that that loophole of sorts? Um, well, there, there's a couple of ways that, that are typically done. One is that anything that's related to disposal, literally removing yourself from an active orbit, is required by most of the regulatory agencies to be demonstrated at at least 90% reliable, which means that... Um, you can't just say well we're going to we're going to launch a CubeSat into geosynchronous orbit and you know it's it's only about a 50-50 chance that it will work and we're just uh, you know if it works then we'll get out of that geosynchronous orbit in accordance with the disposal guidelines but if it doesn't work then no else will just be floating through the the geosynchronous orbit belt Um, They're not allowed to do that. They have to show that um, no matter what the reliability of their satellite is, the reliability of getting out of that geosynchronous orbit is at least 90%. The problem we end up with is that, of course, you know, there's a way to be 100% reliable in getting out of low-Earth orbit, and that is to launch into an orbit that's low enough that you'll reenter within 25 years. And there's a lot of folks out there questioning right now whether that's good enough. You know, is 25 years – Floating around doing nothing really good enough. Do we do we need that to be shorter? And um, if so, how do we how do we enforce that reliability requirement on um, smaller satellites or, or constellations of satellites and so forth? And you know, then even the 90% reliability number leaves 10% wiggle room for things to go wrong. And is those the right are those the right values to preserve? You know, what's becoming rapidly a, a major degree problem. Um, does that address your question?
0: Yeah, that's uh, that, that's very sensible. Thank you. Um, you know, we've actually heard a lot in this forum about technologies for debris management and mm-hmm. sweeping and picking up. What's not clear is who needs to buy it. Um, right. You know, who's responsible for making it happen? And that's that's a question that's that's never really been answered.
2: Exactly, and and all of the policy for the most part right now is centered around prevention and not remediation, um, and and of course nobody has right now a strong incentive to flip the bill for like you say cleanup or or um, you know ensuring more more consistent and more reliable reentry or or you know getting rid of all of the debris that's up there that nobody owns you know fragments from explosions or or satellites that were launched before some of these policies were put into effect. Um, You know, it is a really good question of, of what is it that, uh, who should take that on? And uh, what would be the incentive for them to take it on?
0: Yeah, okay, that's excellent. Thank you very much.
2: And and this is Sam, I will
3: also add in from experience, um, on one of our missions, we had two spacecraft that we knew were going into an orbit that they would not be down naturally in 25 years. And they were each originally going to fly the exact same deorbit device. One was a commercial satellite, one was a DoD satellite. And on the DoD side, that deorbit device was approved, and that's what it flew with. On the commercial side, um, the processes they had to go through, the FCC did not think that that deorbit device was reliable enough and um, uh, disapproved it, and they had to go off and find something different. So there's also inconsistencies there.
0: Okay, great. Thanks. Hi, this is Ben. Can I hear uh, just,
2: else? Sorry, go
5: ahead. Just following up to that same sort of question, right? Wh- Say you had a satellite that uh, is non functional, um, who maintains liability for that? I, I'm specifically thinking of like the old uh, uh, Russian and Iridium uh, satellite collision.
2: Yep. Yeah, the Outer Space Treaty, um, which is the only real, I mean, it's not the only international standard or norm of behavior, but it's the, you know, it, it, it's, it's, the only thing that's even remotely binding on the signatories of it states that any um, any country on whose register a satellite is launched maintains liability and, and responsibility. So if it's a U.S. satellite, then it's the U.S. government who maintains, you know, essentially liability for that satellite. And uh, then the question is, well, does the U.S. government have any recourse or can it go and, and knock on the door of the parent agency, whether that be, you know, military, NASA, or commercial, private, whatever it is. Um, and, you know, the, the answer is unclear. In general, the idea is that whoever has satellite control authority at the end of the uh, satellite's life, mission life, retains satellite control authority until that satellite is gone, either disposed of in a disposal orbit or reentered into the atmosphere. So, but again, how do you enforce that? You know, if you have an inactive satellite, that's an Iridium satellite. Iridium maintains the satellite control authority of that. Um, And, you know, and reasonably, the U.S. government could come down and fine Iridium for, for, you know, not um, achieving 25-year reentry. In practice, I'm not sure how often that happens. And obviously, we see a lot of old Russian uh, rockets and rocket bodies that explode because they were launched before some of these um, safety measures to prevent accidental explosion were launched. Um, And you know, there's there's not much that you can do. It's almost like the high seas, right? There's there's not a lot of. In fact, it's the analogy isn't too bad because if you're on the high seas, you operate under the laws of the country whose flag you're flying. Um, But in reality, the the Enforcement of that is very difficult to accomplish.
5: So continuing on the the enforcement portion, you know, I'm, I'm at NASA. We're not a, a regulator, right? So we don't have authority to fine anybody. Which right. U.S. entity would be the, the regulator that could uh, enact, say, a fine against Iridium or Starlink or whomever, if it were a U.S.-flagged uh, company?
2: Yeah, no, that's a really good question, and I will caveat by saying I don't fully know the answer, but um, for something like space debris and uh, explosions and and that sort of thing, a commercial satellite would go would be fined by the FCC. Um, you know, I think we had the case recently where a, a set of satellites was launched by the um, by the Indian rocket, the RSLT Indian rocket, um, or I'm, I'm messing up the acronym. But um, And they, they had not gotten their FCC frequency license, and that company got fined by the FCC because they, uh, they launched without their license. Um, mm-hmm. If it's a NASA satellite, then, um, you know, the agency itself probably can't find whatever center or whatever program office was in charge. But I imagine that there would be the safety and mission assurance office would come down fairly hard on a NASA um, program that um, that launched and without you know without adhering or or who deliberately flaunted some sort of policy requirements related to say orbital debris, um, you know in reality you don't see a lot of that. Um, in reality, what you see instead are waivers and grandfathering and and so forth. But um, but yeah, you're you know the the difficulty is of course all of this like we talked about before is usually handled prior to launch. And um and there's not a whole lot of recourse once you're up there to say go back and say all of you irresponsible folks, um, you know, we're gonna we're going to uh um charge you X number of money because you didn't clean up after yourself.
5: Mm-hmm. Understood. Well thank you for that.
2: Okay, any further questions? Okay. Um And we got so involved in that discussion that uh, my screen actually locked on my computer. So I am just getting myself back into it, and then we can move on to chart number seven. So the next couple of charts kind of walk through from each agency um, the types of approvals that are required. And, you know, this is the way that it's kind of laid out in our flow charts in the paper, because once you've determined who's responsible, you can kind of go to the flow chart that's responsible or that's related to your agency. Um, But another way to look at this, and I'll try to highlight some of the commonalities as we go through, is that uh, on this, you know, and I've I've broken up the flow charts into sections here, so you don't see them all at once and they fit on the charts, but um, is to look at the different areas. Um, Usually there's, you know, what we call comset, communication security or information assurance. There's laser and the use of lasers. Um, Translational propulsion, which means that you have a propulsion system that's capable of a a moderately high amount of delta V, which can imply that you could uh, maneuver or, or, you know, maneuver into collisions with other objects. And then um, later on, we'll talk a bit more about uh, proximity operations, sector management, debris mitigation, and uh, imaging. But for the DoD, you know, here's the the policy for the DoD. Comsec and IA is handled through DoDI. That's 8581.02. That's heavily reliant on this um, CNSSP12. And I, I, for the life of me, can't remember. I think I've got it here somewhere. What CNSSP stands for? Um, But it's the national policy parent on that. And the bottom line is that just about every DoD satellite has got to have some sort of encryption, and you can decide whether You have a classified or highly, um, you know, a highly critical system, then it's got to be NSA improved. But if it's not highly critical, then it can be commercial best practices, but it still needs NSA approval. Uh, Government satellites, DOD satellites in particular, need to go through the laser clearinghouse, which evaluates whether their laser communications um, are in a tier that would set them apart as far as danger to other satellites, and if they are dangerous to other satellites or if the firing of that laser could cause harm to other satellites, then you have to get approval through the Secretary of Defense. If um, they're lower risk, um, then you range from either no restrictions or you have to register and coordinate every firing of that laser through this organization called the Laser Clearinghouse. Um, and that's run out of the, what's called now the 18th Space Control Squadron or the, what used to be called the JSPOC, the Joint Space Operations Center. Uh, right now, there's no requirement specific to translational propulsion on satellites, meaning that um, if you, you have to have encryption on your uplinks and downlinks and you have to take some information assurance and some sort of anti-exploitation measures, regardless of whether you have a thruster or not on your spacecraft. Um, for the DoD, there's um, you'll see that this is one of those areas where commercial satellites don't have a requirement to have encryption on your uplink and downlink. And and if you are a particularly pessimistic sort of person and you think about the possibility of a hacker gaining access to a satellite with a propulsion system, uh, there's a lot of havoc that those people could potentially wreak on, on the space environment. So uh, that's one of those policy... Or, or areas that we need to kind of think about as we move forward. Uh, before I go on, are there any questions? Okay. Uh, if you go on to chart number eight, um, we don't have any publicly available proximity operations and the definition of proximity operations means anything. It, well, first of all, it's a little unclear what constitutes proximity operations. But generally agreed, we're talking about operations close up to another satellite with the desire to sort of interact with that satellite. Not the more general formation flying of of maintaining a set distance from another satellite, but uh, the rendezvous and the actual operating in and around essentially the airspace of another satellite. Um, There is some classified guidance for this for the DOD, but um, it can be hard to find for anybody who isn't a DOD or who has some DOD sponsorship, which is a, a university satellite. Uh, and the, the interesting distinction when it comes to spectrum management is that the DOD does not go through the Federal Communications Commission for its frequency allocation. It uh, goes through the National Telecommunications and Information Agency. Both processes end up at the, um, at the International Telecommunications Union for registration. But uh, the, the flow is a little bit different. And one of the problems that we sometimes have is, um, for example, we've had some university or some university satellites that happen to be service academies. So the Air Force Academy builds satellites, the Naval Postgraduate School builds satellites. Um, these, these universities are, are they universities or are they DOD entities? Well, and so do they go through the FCC or do they go through the NTIA? Well, the answer that we are getting is that they go through the NTIA. They're considered DOD uh, assets, Um, but some of these want to build and launch satellites for amateur radio operations. Um, And to do that, then you need to get an amateur frequency license. But the NTIA does not grant amateur frequency license, and you have to go through the FCC. So you can see here how the gray area tends to play out, where sometimes we end up with agencies or satellite developers Going through the NTIA and being told they need to go to the FCC, and then going to the FCC and being told they need to go through the NTIA, which is you know one of these policy gray areas that sometimes it would really help to have kind of a, a, a central adjudication agency that could give you the advice. Hey, okay, pausing here on chart eight for a moment.
4: So this is Dallas <clears> huh? <throat> A comment about no publicly available proximity ops guidance. Um, the organization Confers, the Consortium for Satellite Servicing, which was started by the by DARPA a couple of three years ago, maybe, uh, has defined guidance for proximity operations. We've got uh, uh, standard, I wouldn't call them standards, but the policies and practices that we've developed for that.
2: Great. Yeah, I'm familiar with confirms, um, yeah. but I have not read their um, their guidance, so I will be very interested in taking yeah. a look at that.
4: And you should go look at that, and if you can't find it, give me a, give me a, a holler, and I will uh, uh, let, let you let let you or send you the, the proper materials.
2: Great, thank you very much, and and let me just also use this to emphasize the idea that you know we are of course human beings. Sam and I and Aaron Zuckerman who helped us uh, update the policy, and all the folks that we have helping us out. And uh, there are many cases and policy is always changing. So don't think that we either have a pipeline to the wisdom of the masses or that we yeah. know that we've gotten everything right. Um, please yeah. do let me know th- things like this, that uh, unless Sam and I know we are very interested in feedback and as things change, what we can learn from all of this. So, uh, yeah. so that's we're that, that's always exactly looking for updates. Uh,
4: uh, industry companies, not government. So, 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 yep. uh, it's available.
2: Yes, it is. Cool. Very good. Yeah, and like I said, I'm familiar with confers, and we're seeing a lot more of these uh, industry or public, I should say, forums, and um, I, I'm trying to like almost call them affinity groups um, of of groups banding together to write um, guidelines that are not don't have the force of law. But which generally, you know, generally that's an excellent way to, to, you know, to kind of come up with policies that make sense for everybody rather than some agency dictating them down. um, You know, we're seeing a lot more commercial entities um, kind of making recommendations among themselves, and uh, that tends to result in better compliance, um, you know, more uh, reasonable policymaking that has a better chance of success.
4: Right, right. These are these are industry defined and they're voluntary.
2: Exactly, and and it, um yeah, and it, it those are you know in some cases more effective than even force of law policies. Okay, I'm on to chart nine, which is uh, debris mitigation for the um, you know the parents the parents uh, document for U.S. national debris mitigation policy is something called the orbital debris mitigation standard practices or the ODMSP, uh, those were recently rewritten and republished. And for the first time, they have a lot more um, numerical numbers in them. The previous version had a lot of guidelines. They were very short. And uh, then it was up to the agencies, the owning agencies, the DOD, NASA, or the, in this case, the FCC, to interpret those and to say, well, minimizing the potential for explosion means a probability of explosion less than, say, 1 times 10 to the minus 3. Now, a lot of those same numbers are in the ODMSP, and it's mostly just how each agency demonstrates compliance that uh, changes from agency to agency. So, for the DOD, they do what we call a space debris assessment report, an SDAR. And uh, if everything is in accordance with the ODMSP, then uh, they're approved for launch for debris mitigation. If they have any violations, they have to get a waiver from the head of the agency. And uh, right now for imaging, there is an interagency government imaging working group or a remote sensing working group that um, does reviews and provide guidance, but there's no DOD or there's no NOAA certification required for imaging of the earth um, or, um, and then non-earth imaging of op- made by operational systems that goes through that uh, remote sensing working group. Any questions here on Chart 9? Okay, so now this is, uh, again, I, I kind of walked through the DOD, and we talked about all these different agencies. I'm not going to spend a ton of time going through the specifics of, of NASA and then private. I do encourage you to, to look at the paper, which goes into all these areas in depth. Um, but for NASA, you can see that comtech and IA is handled by a NASA procedural requirement. There's no requirement to encrypt. However, you have to do an analysis to show your vulnerabilities and any criticality of systems that you need to protect, and and then choose appropriate um, encryption and information security protections as uh, as deemed by the results of that review. Um, The laser does – NASA and commercial satellites do not have to go through the laser clearinghouse. They do have to make sure that they're compliant with OSHA and airline safety for uh, not blinding pilots and so forth. Uh, there are no agency that we know of um, information on translational propulsion, meaning that there's no guidance saying if you've got a translational propulsion capability greater than a certain amount um, that you need to uh, to encrypt or not encrypt or or something. We've kind of come up with this, uh, or we we asked um, some of the policy folks to provide us with interim policy interpretations for some of our NASA from our NASA satellites and. This is an example of what they told us. If it's greater than two meters per second, then you should follow the regulations for information assurance in the NIST special uh, pamphlet 8053. Um, same thing for proximity operations. This may be changing, but I right now I you know please the NASA folks on the audience let me know if there is a, a national a NASA an NPR or any sort of NASA um, mission statement or, or requirement for. the the conducting of proximity operations. I know that I have seen now recently some new NASA, there was an interim NASA directive that I think is becoming a a final NPR on collision avoidance that does, I think, at least mention proximity operations. But I will be very interested in hearing about how that that evolves over time in the agency. And uh, same with imaging, no NASA policy exists. Um, But uh, this is something that uh, may be changing as we speak. Spectrum management for NASA, like the DOD, goes through the NTIA. Frequency approval is granted through the NTIA. Um, For NASA grants projects, meaning these satellites that are commercially or or privately owned and operated but which receive NASA grants, most of those go through the FCC. And then debris mitigation is through this NASA procedural requirements, um, 8715.6, and most of the procedures for conducting the analysis that, and, and writing up the reports are through the, uh, the 8719.14 documents where we find things like the ODAR, the Orbital Debris Assessment Reports, and an end-of-mission plan for how to dispose at the end of your life. Okay, questions on Chart 10?
5: Uh, not a uh, – sorry, this is Ben. Uh, not a question on the chart, but uh, uh, just a, a little update. Uh, so we do have a new NASA standard. It's 1006, which talks about uh, ComSec requirements and then, you know, if there's repulsion and stuff like that. I don't know off the top of my head about any sort of uh, uh, NPRs or what have you for proximity operations because I don't deal with uh, that typically. But uh, just something for you to look at, NASA Standard Perfect. 1006.
2: I've written it down.
5: Barbara, this is Harley.
2: Yes.
4: This is truly great stuff, and I'm glad we're getting lots of questions. Um, playing my role as moderator, we've got about nine minutes, about eight minutes now, until the nominal quitting time for us. We can run a few minutes late, but um, do, do keep in mind the time.
2: Yeah, I have been keeping my eye on the clock, and I my plan is to speed up. I'm nearly done. And, um, and we'll go very quickly through chart 11, which is private satellite policy. And mostly here, I'll highlight the, the empty spots here where, uh, you know, they, they don't, and by private again, I usually mean private and commercial. There's no real requirement to go through the laser clearinghouse. There are no encryption requirements on uplinks and downlinks, including for satellites that do translational propulsion or proximity operations. Um, if you move on to chart number 12, um, you'll see the fact that imaging approval for private and, and commercial satellites is through the, um, you know, it's, it's part of public law. But uh, it goes through NOAA for, for approval, and it's related to how good your imaging is and how it compares to existing assets that are out there. Spectrum management is through the FCC, and uh, debris mitigation is through the FCC as well. Um, That's where you get basically the FCC requires you to submit an an orbital debris assessment report, much like NASA does. And if it's not to their liking, then then they will deny your approval to read to transmit. So a lot of people are kind of shocked to discover that really the biggest regulation of uh, on orbit orbiting assets or commercial orbiting assets is really the FCC and, and a little bit of NOAA for imaging. Um, and that's something that I know that there's been a lot of discussion about what role the Department of Commerce should take, um, because, uh, you know, the reason why the FCC is in charge is they've got the, the, you know, regulatory authority to deny you your ability to talk to the ground. But if we all move to laser communications, is there anybody who's going to be regulating commercial satellites um, for because they don't technically need an RF frequency license? Okay, uh, chart number 13 is uh, just a quick discussion of the ODMSP, which I won't dwell on because uh, we've talked about it in relationship to both the FCC and the agency policy as we walk through these, uh, these uh, flow charts. Um, the only thing I'll mention is that the FAA licensed commercial launches and uh, then the DOD and NASA um, regulate range safety. So, um, and then that's the demarcation between launch and orbital safety is usually the satellite separation from the launch field. And that brings us on to the summary. And um, most of this we've, we've kind of discussed. So, I will just very briefly say that, you know, this is a, a complicated process. Lots of especially small satellite developers are not familiar with it. Um, some of these development timelines are very short compared to the regulatory approval timelines. And a lot of this is due to the fact that, um, you know, we're kind of evolving from a a regime where mostly big government agencies launch satellites and and government contractors to one of a more democratization of who has access to space and much more commercial involvement. And uh, that's led to a lot of uh, need to kind of reinterpret policy in these contexts. And, you know, good policy is slow to develop because you don't want to – Fire off something and then have to change it uh, six months later, but uh, that's always challenging when we live in an arena where technology is advancing and we have such things as CubeSats built by high school students and uh, rockets that uh, fly back to the launch site and re-enter. Um, so policy can lag technology, and uh, this little guide that we have written is probably already out of date. But the goal here was to provide a resource for those who uh, come in with a whole host of questions and are having trouble finding
1: answers. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. Your feedback is very much appreciated. You can send us comments or a guest recommendation to podcast at spaceq.ca. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter, at The Economy Space. And you can also support the podcast by writing a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to us. Until next time.